0: Ian touched on it uh, a little bit um, in the intro, but that it is true that um, we seem to think of the gospel as very evangelistic, which it is, and lost people need to hear that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and His death and His burial and His resurrection. That is absolutely true, but but sometimes we we jump into our faith with the gospel and then we then we wave by to it and we start operating back under the law. Now, I might say, well, and here's how you know you're operating the law. When you're doing things um, for God, now, um, let me finish. It's great to do things for God. That's not what I'm saying. When you're doing things for God, and then you see other people who aren't doing things for God, and then you judge them. like That's, that's when you're, you're not operating under grace. You're operating under the law. And I'm not saying it's not bad to push people, say, hey, I think, I think your life would be more fulfilled if, if you were to serve the Lord. But when we look at them, we go, Shh, look at them enjoying their Tuesday night like normal people. <laughs> they should be, should, be, should be doing something. Jesus. That, that's when we've left the gospel, we're operating under the law again. To, to misquote some theologian um, that I can't put my finger on, <laughs> The gospel is not the dock from which we set sail into Christianity, it is the ocean carrying our ship. And so yeah, we're gonna start a series about how the gospel will influence and shape all these things in our lives, and today it's about the gospel-centered family. Uh, If you're taking notes, my three points, there's three of them and they all start with the same letter because that's in the Bible. (laughs) Perspective, priority, and purpose. And and half of this message is going to focus on family relationships, both spousal and parental. But I also want you to know this flows out of that into the family of God. See, God uses the imagery of family all throughout scripture. We are called the bride of Christ. Jesus is called our bridegroom. Jesus taught the church to pray, our Father who art in heaven. In um, John 1, for those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called the children of God. And so we, we are a family. So, so, so if you are a single here, there's something in the gospel for you. If you're married, if you've married a long time, please, please hear the word of the Lord. Um, if you would turn to Romans 5, that's where we're gonna camp out. Today, and we'll run to Genesis 2 for a second, but we're gonna camp out in Romans 5. It doesn't take a very deep look into our culture. I see it in my college classes, my college students all the time. I see it in the shows that are geared towards my children. That the supreme ethic, at least of our culture, Western society, this isn't global, but this is us, the supreme ethic is individuality. Individualism, it's certainly like the most popular ism of all the isms, is individualism. Here's what it says, right, right, here's what we tell our kids. The best thing you can be is yourself. Be yourself. And that's, that's not like a, a, a bad thing to to tell our kids, but it's now gotten to the point where... Anyone who questions the self you're trying to be is automatically wrong. And we have taken the community and the culture, your families, the church, any sort of communal gathering, if they don't support and if they don't line up with what you think yourself to be, the most heroic and the most courageous thing you can do is to leave them. It's a badge of honor, it's bravery we have elevated the individual over the corporate. And, and when you're in a family, this is such pressure to put on a spouse and such pressure to put on your kids that you have to line up with my individualism, with who I am. And, and, and if you don't line up with that, then we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna have issues. Don't expect me to like line up with your individualism. That, that would be ludicrous. Um, and, and, and not only do we come at it from culture, like we, we have the influences from the outside, we have influences from the inside. We don't come here in a vacuum. We were all raised in a family. And that all, that comes up with a lot of baggage. I mean, if there is any place that we saw the brokenness of humans and we saw the consequences of sin, it was in our families, even our well-meaning, you came not with a great family. You, you still see that. Um, so with those things, let's, just acknowledging them right now, that we have our own baggage and we have the cultural influence, let's jump in to see what, what grounding voice the, the Word of God can give us. So um, Romans 5, if you're there, say uh-huh. uh-huh. Awesome, I like class participation. So, Romans five, starting in verse 18. So we're in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you for your word. May it speak to us. May it mold us and shape us, and may we be tender and vulnerable enough to bow to its wisdom and to bow to your sovereignty, and may you bless our families as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We need a proper perspective for us and our family. I know this isn't the typical family passage, right? This isn't the typical wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents passage. But I think if, if we could have the proper perspective with what this has for us, it will bring fruit and joy to our family relationships. Um, Eighteen. What what did it say we were? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for who? For all men, or for everybody, or it spread to everyone, whatever your translation says. That means you're condemned. That means I'm condemned. And as condemned, we deserve death. What what happens is we, we, we recognize that, we come to faith in Jesus, and then, man, once we come to faith in Jesus, We get awesome. And then we (laughs) interrupt our family and say, look, I'm awesome. So I deserve some things. I deserve an awesome family. I deserve a clean house. I deserve a cooked dinner. I deserve great sex. I deserve obedient children. Now, we don't say those things. I've never like said those things out loud verbally in my house. But we, we act like that. Now, the reason why I know we, we act like that is because we, we have this ideal of what it should be, and when it doesn't meet up to that ideal, when it doesn't meet up to, to our law and our expectation because of our awesomeness, we, we pout or we get passive aggressive or we get aggressively aggressive um, because we didn't feel we got what we deserve. Somebody, um, somebody once said, the devil doesn't come to us with a pitchfork, but with our greatest desires. And he uses our greatest desires and destroys our relationships. So, let me, so I'll, I'll put some flesh on this. Let me tell you about an ideal I have based on when I was a kid. I'm not saying I was like a great kid. I mean, I was a pretty good kid. But... I wasn't like perfect, I got whippings and all those things, but something I didn't do was I never begged. I didn't get the, the begging gene, the sort of whining for what you want next. Here's what my mom would do. See, I knew I was gonna get two gifts a year, birthday and Christmas. Like those were the two moments I was gonna get something. But my mom would, rent, would make trips to the mall um, to get herself something. she wouldn't get me anything, but I'd go with her. And at the end of our little trip, she would go to the KB Toy Store. Do you remember KB Toys? No, anyway, it was Mall in Beaumont, KB Toys. And she would sit outside while I walked into the toy store for 10 minutes and looked. And just looked at all the stuff I wasn't gonna get. I just, was like, that looks cool. That would be fun. That sounds exciting. And then I would come out of the toy store with nothing, and I made little mental notes, but I never would beg, I would never, my kids didn't get that from me. Like, I can't drive within a mile of a toy store, they smell the cheap plastic. Dad, I need a Barbie. You have 18 barbers, I know, but I ain't got this one. Like, and so, when my kids ask for stuff, I get really frustrated, because I didn't do that as a kid. That wasn't, that my ideal, my law is you don't ask for things. You wait for me to give you something. Like I tell my kids every Christmas, Jesus got three gifts and you weren't that good this year. (laughs) Like, I've had that conversation. That's, and so I, I lash out, right? Because they broke my law. They, they didn't live up to my ideal, there's a great theologian, a German theologian from the 40s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote this book called Life Together, and it's really about church community, but I think it can apply here. Here's what he says. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community or family is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life or family life together should be, and to try to realize it, but God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. Here's what he ends with. He enters the community of Christians with his demand, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. We need to drop the demands of our ideal family. It slowly destroys our spouse and it slowly destroys our kids. And who are we but condemned people? So, okay, this perspective, the initial perspective, is man, we're a condemned people. Let's keep going. Verse 19 says, for as by one man's disobedience the many will be, were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many be, will be, what is that next word? Made righteous. It didn't say you make yourself righteous, it says that we are made righteous, not to be too grammatic, but we're the passive agent in that text, this was done to us. The Hebrew word for that, made, is kathistami, at least that's what it looks like to me. And it means to place or appoint Permanently. Let's say you are appointed an elder. Let's say that you are appointed king. That's that same word. We are appointed as righteous. We deserve death, but we get Jesus' righteousness. This is the perspective we need. This is, if you want to impress somebody, this is called the doctrine of imputation, where... Jesus' righteousness is imputed or placed on, kathistemi, on us. But how would a perspective like this help our family relationships? That's where verse 20 comes in. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Let me just say, if you want your children to break a lot of rules in your house, make a lot of rules, and they will break every one of them, Okay. That's what this is saying. Where the law comes in, it increases the trespass because now we're aware of our sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, okay, let's say that Sandra is like just really nagging me about this broken light bulb for like the sixth week in a row. (laughs) And, or some air filter. Or let's, uh, let's say... It's actually something serious. Let's say she was really belittling me in front of the kids. I remember in that moment, you know what I deserve? I deserve death. You know what I got? Jesus' righteousness and a pretty attractive wife. And so I'm gonna let grace abound. Let's say that, let's, let's say that uh, one of my kids is making me think a family of five would s- just sound so much better than a family of six. Because there's, right now there's one. But anyways, in that moment I remember sin increases and I deserve death and I got Jesus' righteousness. So I'm gonna let grace abound. Now look, Grace abounding is not excusing the sin. Because I want you to, don't don't hear that. God's grace doesn't excuse our sin. When he pours out his grace on us, if anything, his grace propels us and motivates us as believers to please him. Okay, so extending a, a godly grace to your family can have the same effect. Can have the same effect. Like, look, there's a thing called discipline, and it is a good gift given by God to your children through you. Use that. When I have to discipline my kids, I, like, I'll like i even say this, that honey, daddy's about to show you how much he loves you. I need you to go to your room and wait for me. Okay? Even, even discipline is grace abounding. Okay? The sin increase, grace abounded. And if grace abounds through your discipline, your discipline's gonna be more effective than if anger abounds in your discipline. That's just, that wasn't part of the sermon, that's just free advice. Um, (laughs) So this also helps my kids interact with each other. I try to remind them of this often. Look, just the other day, um, they're fighting over how much ice cream each person has. And now look, it was bluebell ice cream, so it's a legit squabble. But, but I come in and, and I say, Hey, hey guys, what do you deserve? And they go, Death. Right. You deserve death. You got ice cream. Okay. Let, let grace abound. Let grace abound. I, I stole that from a, a teacher, he was talking about this thing called gospel fluency, and it's like I like that. So um, you use that. They, they pick up on it quick. Look, and, and can I say something sort of anti-cultural? I mean, I'm going to, so I don't know why I asked. But and, and dare I say, like, even like even anti wimberleyan we need to teach our children to lose. Okay? We need to teach our children to lose petty arguments, to lose toys, to lose boys, to lose rights, to lose everything but the gospel. We're just like to hear kids take, 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 take. Here, kids take, take, take. Now teach them to lose. Teach them to sacrifice. Let's let's read them Philippians 2 where, where we read that Jesus gave up all of his rights, all of his entitlements, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's, let's show him that. Say, look what Jesus gave up for you. Could you give up that toy for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your brother? Could you, could you give up this TV show for the sake of your mom and fold some laundry? I want to teach my kids to lose. Let's look, and I'm going to come back to this later on. But I'll say it again: let's let's not show our kids they're the center of our universe, but that Jesus is the center of our universe. Um, any any chance I get to sort of bring my kids down, I take advantage of it. <laughs> so, um, anyways, we're going to leave today. I don't I don't know if we're going to do that, but. But we need a gospel perspective, right? We deserve death, and we got his righteousness. If we live like that, and we interact with each other like that, and you interact with each other in this room like that, man, just, God, the spirit of God would just flow out. We need a gospel perspective. Second, priority, that's the next point, priority. Um, we've seen how using our ideal can sort of destroy our families and put a pressure on our families. Let's see what God's ideal is. If you look at verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Just quick note, throwing this out there, I want you to see that God lays the blame for the sin that went through all mankind at Adam's feet by one man's disobedience. So men, we want the headship, great. We get the responsibility that comes with it. Okay, so many were made sinners. So I want to go to before that moment when God set up the first family to see what his ideal is, see if we can strive for that. So um, if you go back to Genesis two for this. So I turning there, for, for, for almost a week, God has been a creating machine. And for six days, everything was either good or very good. But in verse 18, Genesis two, if you're there, say, uh-huh. All right. And the Lord God said, it is, oh, not good. That man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, this is the moment, guys, to know your wife, say, see, it says you're the helper. It'd be a terrible idea. But I want you to know, ladies, that that's the same Hebrew word used to describe God. We, we sang a song, I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord, it's the same, same idea. So there is no devaluing, there's, there's great um, dignity and great glory in being called the helper. Go, back to, go down to verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, t- took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Do you see that, the f- that God is the first father bringing the bride to the groom? 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, okay. Here's the two verses I want us to lean on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Can I confess, those two verses always puzzled me. First of all, in verse 24, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother. There was no father and mother yet. Like, that wasn't like a relationship yet. (laughs) Um, But God, like, foreseeing what's gonna happen Throws that in. And I want you to see that God is going out of his way there to talk about a a relationship that doesn't even exist yet, to say, hey, this relationship between the husband and wife that takes priority over the relationship between you and your child. The the first family God put in the garden was a husband and a wife. Want you to see that. I want you to see that. We need to make our marriage a priority. Men, some of us need to leave our father and mother. And I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally. Every time Ma and Pa says jump, we don't need to say how high with our family. We need to to leave them. When we first got married, um, Sandra and I picked a holiday, it was Thanksgiving, we picked a holiday that we said we're not going home. Not because it's difficult, we didn't have kids. Nothing was difficult, <laughs> everything's a breeze. <laughs> there, there's a, I was behind this couple in H-E-B and they go to our church, and they're not here today, but they go to our church and they don't have any kids and they had like six things on the conveyor belt. And I said, hey, and they said, hey, and they said, yeah, we're just, we're just grabbing some things for dinner tonight. I was like, look at you, you've got like six things and you're just getting dinner for tonight. Meanwhile, I've got half of H-E-B in my, in my grocery cart. Anyways, just, Ian, y'all, y'all relish these days, Just throw the, okay. Anyways, back, we're going back. Okay, <laughs> nothing was difficult. We just wanted to make a point to our family, hey, we're our own family. We're just, we're just putting our aunts and our cousins and our moms and our dads on notice that hey, you're not invited to our kitchen table. You're not invited to our bedroom. This, this is our family. And, and, and I'll admit, there were, there were some breaks on that. And some of y'all are grandparents. Y'all are like, that's not a good idea at all, man. I want to see them Thanksgiving and then two weeks later for Christmas. Um, but, uh, but that's, and it, and it did. It, it, there was some abrasion there, but now they understand. And, and now they understand. And I wish I could say, I wish I could say that courageous and that wise decision came from me, but it didn't. It came from Sandra. She said, I think this would be a good idea for us. And man, she was right. She was right. It has is, it is served to benefit our marriage. Now your overwhelming love for your family can keep you from leaving for family, but just on a side note, your overwhelming hatred for your family can keep you from leaving your family also. We throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, like we would say, well my, my father was emotionally abusive. And he drug us to church. I'm not taking my family to church. Or my mom served my dad like a maid and I ain't nobody's maid. I'm not doing anything domestic for him. And so because of our hatred and our loathing of what we saw in our family life, we still let them influence our family here that we have. That's why we have this, guys. That's why we have this. Don't let anything be a greater influence on your family than this. So, and, and I've said this before, but bring this back up. Prioritize our marriage. Let our children know that... The person in the house you most wish to serve and you most wish to see happy is your spouse. When me and Sandra are talking, they don't interrupt us, they try, daddy, 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 I need a daddy, shh, leave me alone, get away, you deserve death. <laughs> the, I'm gonna talk to your mom, been gone all day, we put them to bed before we go to bed so we can just have some time alone. So we can have some time alone. They, they know, if, if you're a grandparent, still prioritize your marriage, okay? Gross out your grandkids. <laughs> hey, man, man, pat, pat, you need to leave. You need some time alone. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, you, you might have heard this, research shows that if you, if you work so much and focus on work so much to the detriment of your health that eventually you'll lose both health and work. If you focus, if you focus on your kids so much and you ignore your marriage, eventually you'll lose both. We see this when kids grow up, they're 18, they leave, and then it hits the couple. My gosh, for 18 years, all we've done was revolve around our lives around their schedules and their desires. And now we're two strangers living in a house. And so now that the kid's gone, why even keep up the facade? Please prioritize um, your marriage. Um, And why should we prioritize our marriage? Well, that is for the purpose, the last point. Um, Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Not only am I confused about verse 24, but I'm puzzled about verse 25. Like, why did God have to throw that in? Hey, by the way, no clothes, feeling great. And you might think, well, because they were perfect bodies. And yeah, they were. Like, well, if I looked like that, I wouldn't be ashamed either. One of my students walked up to me. It was a guy and he walked up to me and he he said, hey, Mr. Pickham, do you you work out? And I was like, no, I just look like this. It ain't fair. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Anyways, and then I repented for my pride. Um, but I don't think it was because they were awesome looking. I, I, I think it was because because in chapter 3, they uh, after they sin, what's the first thing they do? They, they cover themselves up. And it's not like they got flabby in a love handle all of a sudden. It's because they, there was a shame there, so... John Piper says it better than I can. He says it like this My suggestion is that the emphasis falls not on their freedom from physical imperfection, but on their fullness of covenant love. In other words, I can be free from shame for two reasons. One is that I am perfect and I have nothing to be ashamed of, the other is that I am imperfect, but I have no fear of being disapproved by my spouse. The first case, there is no shame because we're flawless. In the second case, there is no shame because covenant love covers a multitude of flaws. Now, I know in Genesis two there wasn't any sin yet, but what I want you to see is that verse 25 flows out of verse 24. That man will hold fast to his wife. Guess what, they're naked and they're not ashamed. See, after the fact, they sin. They wanna cover each other up. See, here's what happened. Eve realized Adam is ultimately selfish and can't be trusted with her nakedness and is judging her. And she knows that's true about Adam because she knows it's true about herself. She's doing it to him. It's so the first thing they do. We gotta cover each other up. We gotta cover each other up. I'll be vulnerable. Let me, uh, let me tell you about our first argument Sandra and I had as a married couple. We had first gotten in arguments, of course. <laughs> she's, she's like, yeah. <laughs> We got in arguments uh, dating. But arguments when you're dating are different than arguments when you're married because when you're dating, it's like, oh, well, you made me mad Well, you made me mad. Well, I'm gonna go to my dorm. I'm gonna go to my apartment. When you're married, you're going to the same place. And in and, and the beginning of marriage, right, for us, it was like a 600-square-foot apartment. Not a lot of places to get away. And it was over something stupid. Um, she, in the early part of her marriage, I was in graduate school. She was a teacher at Lockhart. She was my sugar mama. She paid all the bills. I didn't make much money. I worked at Hager Clothing Store at the outlet mall. I sold pants. Did you know Hager makes pants with like an invisible waistband stretchy thing? That's, that, was, that was impressive. I wasn't great at customer service. Some guy would come in and get those and be like, so, just giving up, huh? Just, uh, just lean in. <laughs> so, but um, I didn't sell a lot of pants. The, um... But to me, that like nine bucks an hour was so important. And, and, and I was scheduled to work that weekend. And my wife said, hey, could you, could you take off that weekend? I'd like to go visit my mom and my sister. And I was like, no, I need that nine bucks an hour. Can't do that. And I didn't want to go home and drive five hours anyways. I was, I was sort of being selfish. So we get in this spat over something silly, but when you're married, there's a permanence to it. Like you got this feeling like, okay, the one who wins this wins the rest of them forever. <laughs> it's kind of true, but I walk outside the apartment and I go, because I, I can't be in that 600 square foot apartment. We're mad at each other, right? So I just walk inside the apartment and I go stand next to the pool at the apartment that I never swam in. And I was more mad at myself because, because the facade that I had put up in front of myself when we were dating, right? When you're dating you, everything's awesome. You are awesome. I bathe daily <laughs> when we're dating. And she now saw me, like I I was naked and I was ashamed of what she saw. But thanks be to God for her sin increased and her grace abounded. And she came to me and she, she let me know she's not going anywhere, okay? Like, like I ain't got to worry about coming back into the apartment and her being gone. Her love was steadfast and her grace abounded and we went home that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, Genesis 2, 24, it's quoted in two other places in Scripture. It's quoted in Matthew When Jesus quotes it, it's also quoted in Ephesians 5.21. And Ephesians 5 is the marriage passage. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Wait, what did I say? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It's that part. And so he refers back to it to say, hey, hey, just so you know, this wasn't my idea. This is God's idea. God's the one who's the author of this. But in verse 22, he drops a bombshell. In verse 22, he says... This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Now, think about this. We, we often think that the first picture of Jesus coming is the prophecy made to uh, the serpent about the woman's seed is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. That old passage, oh, Jesus is coming. No, no, no. The first picture we have of Jesus coming is when God says, A man shall leave his father. And he's gonna hold fast to his wife. Jesus is saying, I'm coming. Before the first sin, Jesus is saying, I'm coming. And so he gives us marriage and he gives us our families. Look, the purpose of your spouse is not to make you happy. And the purpose of your kids is not to make you proud. The purpose of your family is to declare the gospel. The people around us, guys, they see our family interactions more than anything. We have lived in Mountain Crest for less than a year. The people I don't even know know two things about our family. My kids are loud and I yell. (laughs) Like they already know that (laughs) without even meeting me. And and, and tonight, we're gonna have people come into our home. And these people that have come to my home for group, they're going, they've seen me with my kids, they've seen me with Sandra, they have seen me come down on Noah, both gracefully, and not so gracefully. Our family interactions speak to people. And so I wanted to ask, does your family declare the gospel? So here's some of the practical. Husbands, do, do your boys see, see you? And I'm gonna say your boys, I don't mean your kids, I mean your, your, your friends, do they see you serve your wife even if they think it's emasculating, even though it's the most masculine thing you can do? Christ came not to serve but to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Husbands, let's do likewise. Guys, your hobbies, your friends, your sports, they all come a distant second to her. A distant second. Wives, do, do your girlfriends see you submitting to your husband's headship, even if they think it's devaluing? I, I, I want to tell you, it is not. Both husband and wife get to play the Jesus role. Look, Jesus submitted to the Father, even to the point of death. And if his submission to the Father did not take away his glory and did not take away his value, I promise you ladies and sisters, it won't take away yours. It won't take away yours. Do they see our kids setting themselves aside for other people? Do they see them willing to lose? Do we tell the stories of my, my wife caught me and caught the websites that I've been going to and they were filthy and she was so hurt and angry, but man, she, she stayed by my side and she forgave me and it reminds me of how Jesus and all my wickedness came up and and loved me and gave me his righteousness my wife isn't my husband isn't an easy man to get along with he isn't an easy man to follow but I'm going to trust my God I'm going to trust his sovereignty over what culture says over what movies says because my God is good and he has his best for me i talked about when our first fight let me tell you when I actually sort of fell in love with Sandra. We were um, I was leading worship for the youth group. And it was just me and a drummer and he was like some 12-year-old boy who had no volume knob just tick 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 all the time. And I didn't have a bass player. And she was she was a french horn player. She was my drum major actually. Um and, she, and, and we're, we haven't been dating for long, and she comes up and she says, hey, if you teach me the bass, I'm willing to play the bass for you. That, that right there was more attractive than any mini skirt or any blouse ever. I'm, will, I'm willing to serve you. I'm willing to get out of my comfort zone, be something I am not, to serve you in that capacity. And she, she still plays bass for me to this day. And I love that. The gospel-centered family is marked and shaped by humility and sacrificial love to the praise of His glory. Guys, this means our families are gonna look different from other families. And our well-intended, extended families, they're gonna cast disapproving looks sometimes at our decisions. A fight we really struggle with. I'll be vulnerable and honest here. Maybe they'll listen online, I don't know. but. We, the fight we have with our extended family is Christmas gifts. But so we want our family to be marked and shaped by the gospel, and so that means at Christmas, my kids can't be the things we worship. And so we have to push against that. No, no, no! Don't buy them gifts. I know, I know, their cousins are getting—is it off? Okay. I know their cousins are getting seventeen different things. I don't want my kids getting those things. We'll do we'll do Christmas at different times if we have to to decrease the awkwardness. But it's going to look different. Our kids are going to be peculiar. Hey, they might be unpopular. They might be unpopular. Church, it is worth it for our families to declare the gospel. There is more joy in that than keeping up with whatever we think the culture says our family needs to look like. And the schedules that says our family needs to look like. There is more joy in saying, no, no, no. We're going to center our family on the gospel.